and making a lasagna, so that'll improve things. I've yet to find a problem that lasagna did improve at least somewhat. I want the, the crispy bits around the edges where the pasta kind of curls up and then there's the cheese sauce and it burns a little bit. That's a very important part of the universe. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Do we have anything that's not like grumping about our lives to put in the soft open? I used to put suggestions and I just haven't recently. Um... Has anything happened in the world of, world of nerd culture that does not involve J.K. Rowling? Because I'm going to mute that word on Twitter now. I didn't for a while because I wanted to be like, you know, not Informed. just ignore the problems that trans people have. But honestly, it is a third of my timeline now. Yeah, especially on International Women's Day. It was Twitter was so destructive for me on International Women's Day. I don't know why I looked at it. Regular reassurance for our listeners that J.K. Rowling's a dick. Uh, we are very trans friendly. Turfs not welcome. Please don't don't listen to us. Uh, nerd culture. Oh, the trailer for the new Obi One series just dropped. That looks pretty good. Uh, That's Star Wars. Yeah, no, I know that. What is it like a prequel? Yeah, it's like set around the time. So you know, like I know you're not a massive Star Wars fan, but you know, like the end of the three, like Episode Three, so the like prequel trilogy that came out in the two thousands. Just. No, no, I don't know the end. The, of that. that ends with Luke and Leia being born, and Luke gets left with his aunt and uncle on Tatooine. Cool. And then obviously, like episode four, old Ben Kenobi is there, yes. and Luke's grown up on Tatooine. This is like those intervening years of uh, okay. Obi Wan like hanging out on Tatooine, I guess. But <laughs> like, I'm not a big enough Star Wars nerd to be super into how this will fit in the canon. What I am is very into you and McGregor with a beard. Oh, is it more you McGregor? Yeah. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's a good thing to have happened then. Yeah, it's, it's all I really care about. Is you, it's a lot of you McGregor with a beard. I like you McGregor a lot. That book I was on about, I don't, I can't remember if I told you, the um, Jasper Ford sequel one's been put off till next year now. Yeah, I think you mentioned that. Yeah, uh, possibly not on audio. I mean, take your time, I guess. But... <laughs> <laughs> I Have really you not taken it. enough time, sir? <laughs> I am um, going to download a bunch of tabletop RPGs. There's lots of like mm. fundraising bundles around at the moment. And next week, I'm going to have a massive tabletop RPG session and learn how they work and then possibly try writing some. How many have you played before? Like, fuck all, to be honest. So you can have one session and then go straight into writing. <laughs> no, I'm going to have one session to get my hair, head around them and give me some ideas. And then I'm going to read more about writing them. I'm not just going to like play one and be like, oh, okay, I know how to do this now. No, I mean, it's not necessarily a bad thing is what I mean. If you mm. come into it without being completely immersed into it, you might come in with like a very different idea. You might end up doing the same thing as someone else has done. But on the other hand, you might come at it from a completely new place. It's like quite often things in various genres benefit from somebody who just goes oh i like this idea but isn't like heavily into the genre actually i saw quite an interesting discussion sorry i'm bringing this back to star wars now but i saw an interesting discussion about that on twitter i hate it carry on i fully aware well no someone was making the point that like when george lucas made it he was really into like westerns and samurai films and that that really yeah inspired it whereas the people making star wars now are really into star wars yes 
And Hayao Miyazaki was quoted as saying a similar thing about like anime culture in Japan. He was like, he used to be made by people who were into all these different genres and now is mm. made by fucking weebs. <laughs> he did not use the phrase fucking weebs. He used the term <laughs> otaku, but which basically means fucking weeb. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that makes sense because like anime is a way to tell a story you want to tell or anime to make an anime. Yeah. yeah. Agree. Hard agree. So yes, um, this is why media ends up becoming super fucking homogenous. Yeah, everything it's a race is a remake, middle, isn't it? Um, yeah. Jack always goes on about not always goes on about, but um, is very anti Marvel universe because he's like it's just the same fucking mediocre quips again and again and again with that smug Joss Whedon humor. I which, honestly agree. I like it. It feels like it's moved on a bit from that. There's variety in some of the TV shows have been really good. Yeah, uh, but, though, that we've talked about this before, haven't we? I feel like mm. it makes more sense that the TV shows are good because they've got a bit more room to play with something other than the crowd pleaser. Yeah, that's very they true. They can take a bit of a risk with at least some of the episode. Yeah. And bring in uh, other people to... Yeah, they tend to vary who's on it a bit more. There's like a variety of writers and also like I'm just more into TV as storytelling than I am film. Yeah, same. I mean, it's not really surprising. I'm not into the Marvel movies um, because there are a million of them and they're so long. And Chris Pratt's face just irritates me now. Yeah, I'm really upset. So I, I used to enjoy... were a constant disappointment, Tess. Yeah, definitely Chris Pratt. He is... One of the most disappointing celebrities. I would just prefer a very crisp rat. Hmm. Ha! Rats! Speaking of people who do not disappoint me, there's a TikTok creator who is a zoologist, maybe? Mm-hmm. Definitely a, a, a scientist. He's into animals. Um, and she has some really funny videos, and including one about rats, and the way she says rats just makes me very happy. Rats! Very angrily. <laughs> I love rats. They're such good little things. Link rats video. Maybe I'll know what I'm on about. I'm not going to. I think I did all right putting the links in last week's, um, considering my notes were scrawled without looking at them. Yeah. I mean, maybe not. Maybe I just added things that were totally irrelevant. Who can say? Your fascinator looks more comfortable today. Yeah, I put it at the back so it's like behind my headphones, which also means I can see. It's now it's literally on backwards. It's not meant to be worn like this, but we're going with it. Like it. It's still festive. It's still there. We went charity shop shopping yesterday, listeners. You know that. You had, yep. You had a lot more success than I did. You look really good in everything you bought. Thank you. I'm wearing the cardigan now, which is not really flattering as on its own as a podcast tog, but I don't care. I've turned the heating off. That's it now. I'm done with it. Done yeah, with no, heating. I'm, <laughs> I'm pretty much done with heating now. Um, don't worry about, about us, listeners. That. It's warmer now as well as expensive. Um, yeah. <laughs> Let's not talk about that. I finished my C++ course. That's a fun thing. You did? Didn't we talk about No. Didn't talk about I, that on the episode because that was Monday. Yeah. And I finished it on Wednesday, two days ahead of mm-hmm. schedule. I'm going to just brag about that a bit more. Unreal Engine next. Unreal Engine. Fighting triangles. Going to make triangles throw stuff at each other. The contentious of shapes. Well, they're so pointy. Yeah, exactly. Like once you get to the bigger shapes with points, the points kind of themselves spread out a bit. Like once you get to like a dodecahedron, it's barely a point, but at a triangle, yeah. it's like yeah, that's a good yeah, that's a good point. Good, sorry, is that like well, a, a rift between the isosceles and the equilaterals? Do we think? And that third type, scalene, scalene, scalene. Look at yeah. that! I'm remembering GCSE maths. <laughs> I do not remember GCSE maths. 
Um, speaking of International Women's Day. Yes, which we definitely were. Some time ago. Um, <laughs> sorry, my brain's working in a very non-linear fashion today, which works because we'll be talking about time travel. Yeah. Um, I did like a, that the group that owns our company mm-hmm. did like a, answer some questions on video about International Women's Day and like we'll put it in like a um, compilation thing. Yeah. Which I did months ago when they did this and they did put out on my minute, except it's just the one bit like that I stuttered through. I'm like, oh no. <laughs> they had like, to I pick that bit. <laughs> it's a really nice video and they made such an effort for like obviously they like my answer for this one and pick that. But except it's the one it's the one bit I remember I was like, I don't have time to do this again, I'll just send it, it's fine. Ugh. Very nice. What was the bit you were talking about? They were just saying, uh, what was it? It was um what what was your highest achievement in your career? And I said, uh, honestly, I don't have any accolades or anything. I'd say my highest achievement is making the career I have without any higher education. Um, and then, like, who helped you in it? And I think I said, well, part of my answer, and they picked it out, obviously, because it was a woman, was um, uh, my mum didn't push me into studying things. I didn't want to study and just left me alone with piles of books, basically. And that's what I started through. But, mm. Yeah. Oh. Never mind. I love your mum. Yeah, she's great. She's Books and books and books. That's how you grow up to be interested in too many things at once. Yes. I don't know what you're talking about. You and I both have a reasonable number of interests. I didn't even have time to look into all the cool map websites I found in support of what I vaguely mentioned last week. So hopefully before next week I will. But How much of our podcast is us just saying we will eventually remember to talk about things? Because mm, I'd say <coughs> probably about 3.5%. Oh, that's good. That's not too bad. Yeah, yeah it's, it's all right. Oh, uh, right. I've got a shit ton of follow-up, so should we make it a short open and a long follow-up? Yeah, let's make a podcast. All right, let's make a podcast. Wait, no, you have to ask me the question or it feels wrong. Do you want to make a podcast? Yeah, let's make a podcast. Hello and welcome to The Tree Shall Make You Fret, a podcast in which we are reading and recapping every book from Terry Pratchett's Discworld series one at a time in chronological order. I'm Joanna Hagen. And I'm Francine Carroll. And this is part two of The Last Continent. Yay. We're in the middle. We're in the middle. It's hard to tell with this book, to be honest. There's no great rise and fall uh, plotline kind of thing. But physically, these are aimlessly wandering towards the denouement. But in Mm -hmm. the meantime, uh, note on spoilers, we are a spoiler light podcast. Obviously, heavy spoilers for the book, The Last Continent. But we will avoid spoiling any major feature events in the Discworld series. And we're saving any and all discussion of the final Discworld novel, The Shepherd's Crown, until we get there so you, dear listener, can come on the journey with us. Clinging on for dear life on a tiny, tiny horse. Follow up. Mm, Uh, We have have things to follow up on. I did not come up with any funny motivational posters because I put it in the notes and then promptly forgot. Excellent. Um, I didn't do motivational posters either. I did get professor names. Professor faculty what positions, did you, did you come up with? No, mm. I, uh, my brain has not done anything but code this week. And doom scroll. And doom scroll. Terrible combination. So I got, well, first of all, special mentions, I thought, because on our subreddit, there are a couple of people who spend a long time finding us really good annotations. Yes. Um, there are a couple as well I haven't got to yet, but uh, Zinc Stoke. And Sonder Vogel, I thought, deserved subreddit flair, which is mm-hmm. a, a small 
a small thing I can do to say thank you. But uh, so Zinc Stoat is now a protean annotator in tangential studies. Uh, Sondervogel is a cyclopedic annotator in multifarious studies. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, also, um, our new faculty members, I think, are the lecturer in inscrutable spheres, the professor of haphazard analysis, the professor of interminable calculus, the reader in perfunctory omens, and the professor of unorthodox dendrology. I would personally like to claim professor of unorthodox dendrology as my title. Sounds great. Um, I that is might... trees, right? Yes. I think I might go for haphazard analysis. Yeah, I think that's good. Mm, that yeah. suits you. I like perfunctory omens, but I do want to be a professor, and I'm not sure what a reader is. Fuck knows. That's one of those I'm fancy not, university yeah. things that we didn't. I can we take a guess at lecturer. But <laughs> we didn't get none of that fancy learning. No, no. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, other follow-ups. 4X. 4X. It's a beer. It's a beer. I knew that. I served it. I was going to say, you did work in a bar in Sydney for a, for a decent yeah. chunk of time. I mean, it's, it's not a Sydney beer, but we definitely sold it. Uh, a couple of our a couple of our listeners now have sent us pictures of that same Forex brewery building. Oh, that's nice. But also, there's Castlemaine Forex, which was an Australian beer sold in the UK and had a popular series of adverts in the late '90s, which Sam on Twitter reminded me of. Do you remember um, them? I don't remember them, but like I'm aware of them in pop culture, if that makes sense. Yeah, so yeah. I looked up a couple. I'll uh, link to one on YouTube, but the idea was that it was Australians wouldn't mm. give a Castlemaine four X, so it looks like they wouldn't give a swear word. Oh, nice. Um, um, I will say, in case anybody is not aware of this already, uh, Australians don't like you associating them with Fosters. I'm not it's, surprised. It's not really considered a drinkable liquid in Australia. It's barely considered a drinkable liquid in the UK. I think I used yeah. it to brush my teeth at a festival. Um, I once used it to cook pasta in, in a festival, reminiscent of Rincewind's late night exploits. And How was that pasta? Less successful, honestly. Yeah, yeah not good. It wasn't good. Um, I think after that attempt, I just started biting the bullet and buying takeaway food while I was there. Stopped trying to cook. Yeah, no, I after going to a festival with a slight cold eating lukewarm baked beans because I couldn't be bothered to heat them up all the way. And then that cold turning into a full-blown illness at the end of the festival. I no longer am willing to eat camping food. Even though those two any... things are not connected. <laughs> no, but like I associate I them in my memory. just string together all your misfortunes. <laughs> well, they happened in the space of five days. I also got robbed. That was the baked beans fault. Oh my God. <laughs> This is why we don't go to festivals anymore. Anyway, um, let's I talk about the book. The anecdotes the afterwards are more depressing than the real life ones. Jesus. <laughs> Deciding uh, here that festivals aren't real life, by the way. That's it. A... <laughs> no, absolutely not. They're liminal spaces. Exactly. Right. Sorry. Um, anyway. Let's talk about the book, The Last Continent. No, still got other follow-up. Okay. I said I had it. a lot of follow-up. <laughs> I love you. I love you. I'm sorry. I'm <laughs> right. Right. A couple of bits of follow-up from the people I gave the flair to. Yes. So it's connected. Zinc Stoat. 
concerning the first part of the book, I just forgot to say it last week. Uh, the bit about watching giant slabs of ice slamming into a nearby planet and barely batting an eye is a clear reference to Comet, Comet Shoemaker Levy 9, which, having been broken into fragments during an earlier pass in 92, was finally sucked into Jupiter's gravity well in July 94 and illustrated the value of having a gas giant handy to hoover up those space rocks, which might otherwise end all human life on Earth. Ah, lovely. Um, I then watched in like an infrared video of it hitting Jupiter, and it looked incredibly apocalyptic. Very good, very nice. Nice. Very big fireball. We like a big apocalypse. We do. And then later... There's a passing reference as wizards are looking for the egregious professor of cruel and unusual geography to the tendency of map makers to populate far off lands with such nonsense as race of men with bond giant foot. Uh, on, on round world, these beings are known as skyopodes and appear in such works as Aristophanes, the birds. Uh, here they're said to dwell in Ethiopia, but they've cropped up across a variety of cultures, legends, and wild suppositions in various tenuously charted locations. Beep. So, um, Non or fiction di disguised as non-fiction and also we've seen giant feet in definitely in one of the Narnia books and I'm sure in some other fiction too I can't think of one yes. off my head um, and then, Lost but we don't talk about that one what? was there one giant foot in Lost? oh no I'm thinking of the statue it had two feet I think there was only one foot left but yeah. it didn't look like a lone foot. I feel like it'd be shaped differently if you only had one foot, right? It wouldn't yeah, be like a like it would otherwise be really weird to balance. Like it'd be more symmetrical. Yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah, it'd be like a wedge. I was trying to stand on one leg earlier and it didn't go well, so I would assume a symmetrical foot would be helpful. It would, I'm sure. And then Sandavogel says skullduggery, which by the way does have a proper etymology. I just couldn't be bothered to click through more than one link while we were recording. Is especially funny if you keep in mind the wizard's showy lack of knowledge of meiosis and preference for mitosis later in the book because skullduggery is an apparently an alteration of Scottish skulldudry or skullduggery, bawdry, obscenity or adultery. So euphemism of uncertain origin. It's a sexual euphemism. Ha! And yeah, when wizards say they'd prefer to split into two, be cleaner, more hygienic. No skullduggery here. Sandavagel also looked into potential connections with blood low to reality. Uh, according to the wiki, it might be connected to the German blattlaus, meaning aphid. They say, and I agree, there's it doesn't seem to be that's a bit tenuous. Yeah. And something to do with maybe blood lows necessarily a par parasitic parasitic relationship. But yeah, no. I agree. I think I think it's just a, a word he liked. Mm-hmm. I think, I think that's all I've got because I decided not to go into the maps because I already had an entire page of follow-up. That's fair. Cool. Shall we talk about part two of The Last Continent then? Mm -hmm. Oh, wait, no, one more thing. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> I did listen to Pratt Chat's episode because I thought I should. Yes. And yes, there are lots of references we didn't get, won't get, won't get around to. And they did a very long, cool episode on it, which I'll link in the show notes. I recommend you go listen to that after you've listened to us, dear listeners. Yes, but listen to us first. Yeah, Thank we you. don't overlap too much. In some We're not competitive it. with the other Pratchett podcasts, but listen to us first. No. Okay, now I'll let you. Okay, cool. Well, before we talk about part two of The Last Continent, do you want to remind us what happened in part one of The Last Continent? Oh, yes. Previously on The Last Continent, Rince winds in the outback. Hot. Flies. Fell into waterhole. Recruited for baffling quest. Ran away. Met dwarf. 
Meanwhile, in the Unseen University, the librarian is poorly. The fearless faculty goes looking for a cure and finds a portal onto a desert island, which they explore for work, not pleasure. Mrs. Whitlow brings snacks and removes their exit. They're stranded. And there's something singularly peculiar about this place. Good Lord! A pune. A pune. In my podcast. (laughs) As many as possible. You're telling me a pune fried this rice? No, sorry. Mm. This time on The Last Continent, (laughs) shall I I tell us what happened? I want prawn fried rice now. Yes, do. so do I. Sorry. The stars are old and unfamiliar as the Unseen University faculty find themselves stranded not just in space, but in time. Inspector, space time? Uh, Ants abound and might alter the future, and a god watches on before quickly growing a boat from a pumpkin seed. The faculty's own attempts at sailing wallow in the water as the bursa wanders, following the thick green hosepipe to the botanical boat before informing the others. The patriarchal in appearance, if only three-foot god, reveals himself, explaining that the island is his chance at evolutionary redemption after an incident with some inflammable cows. The wizards wish to leave, all but Ponder, who's a little upset over the lack of wonder at the marvellous miracles at work on the island. As the wizards prepare to set sail, Ponder goes missing, having found the workshop of the intelligentish designing deity. The wizards arrive, and a mystical misunderstanding is cleared up with the help of Mrs. Whitlow, who takes it upon herself to teach the god about the birds, the bees, and the brilliant efficiency of sex. As the ragtag bunch of buoyant boatgoers prepare to head out to sea, God assures the wizards that while the ship may be a bit of a squash, it will head for the new continent just going up as they speak. Ponder decides to stay behind, apprenticing himself to the god. Meanwhile, in Forex, Rincewin and Max arrive in Did You Bring a Beer Along, and our hapless hero heads for a pint, served by a crocodile and surrounded by surprisingly humanoid animal punters. The rue beer suits Rincewin a little too well, and later, after an almost fight, he's woken by the helpful Scrappy and spots wizardish drawings in the dunny. Rincewin plans on running to bugger up, but he's waylaid by a strange beer poster, a scorpion, and overconfidence at sheep shearing. After making a clever core cat and winning the steadfast Snowy, he heads on to bugger up. Drop bears drop, a windmill breaks, thirsty animals glare, and Rincewind's horse defies gravity as he accidentally pens a herd heroically. Rewarded with a handy sack of beer and vegetables, he travels on. Camping for the night, Rincewind accidentally invents Vegemite before an inadvertent spot of sheepish behaviour lands him under the eyes of the local watchman. And elsewhere, the luggage lost finds itself picked up by Petunia, the desert princess. More so, about Petunia next week, I see. Much more about Petunia, mm. if I already mentioned last week, but listeners, your homework is to watch Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. So, helicopter and loincloth watch. Mm. I feel like Mrs. Whitlow is doing something of loincloth duty. Yeah. It's very She's... proper, not like, what was it, not bikini, more like a New Zealand. Um, yes. <laughs> very nice. Two quite large, respectable halves separated by a narrow channel, and she ties some of the spare cloth around her waist sarong style so that's doing loincloth duty mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and um beetles are helicopters now yeah no they do hover yep so, more like a helicopter than most of the things you quotes uh do you want to go first <laughs> mm-hmm. is it just me the dean asked or are we marooned thousands of miles and thousands of years from home yes i thought so is there any breakfast the dean Pragmatic. is at all times really quite relatable mm. Good lad. And yours? Uh, once again, I'm sparing the listeners any attempt at an accent. Oh, for because this one even. I cannot, I, 
There is one line I can do in an Australian accent, and I will shoehorn that into the episode later. And I expect you don't even know that we happen to produce some particularly fine wines, our Chardonnays being specially worthy of attention and competitively priced, not to mention the rich, firmly structured, rusted Dunny Valley Semillons, which are a tangily refreshing discovery for the connoisseur. You bastard. You bastard. I just really like an eloquent paragraph ending on you bastard. Yeah, it's also a good reflection of a kind of well-understood Australian defensiveness. Annotated Pratchett referred to it as uh, cultural cringe, and it's this idea of just not being thought of as a richly cultured country. Mm -hmm. And yeah, cool. Right, Uh, characters. Let's talk character. Let's talk character. I thought I'd start with uh, Ridge Cully, including a line that was nearly in my quote for the episode, Ridge Cully told jokes like a bullfrog did accountancy. Yes. Very good. <laughs> Bless him. He, he's one of the, obviously we love him. We uh, may have, may or may not have mentioned that in the podcast last mm-hmm. week, but it's how he relates to the other characters in this particularly well-meaning and frustrating way that brings me so much joy, especially in this section. Mm. His relationship with Ponder of uh, very sort of calmly explaining that he must be wrong about the ants and treading on an ant changing mm-hmm. the future. And the sort of, you've got some brains, but sometimes I wonder if you really try to apply logical thoughts to the subject at hand. Hmm? And as uh, Ponder gets very downcast and angry, it's like, my door's always open. Yes, in a, in a ballistics kind of way. I like that he seems very aware of his faculty and willing to cut them off at the last second. With a, I find it rather insulting, Chancellor, that you should appear to think that, well done, said Reed Carly. Now, should we go and look at this boat? <laughs> Trying to stop Senior Wrangler from perving on Mrs. Whitlow. I, I can't help but think you're working up some horrible joke about the poop deck, Jean, and I'd prefer not. It's all the same. I have a lot of respect for that. And then, yeah, Ponder, speaking of his mm-hmm. relationship with, I love just how desperate he is to find the justification in something that doesn't really make sense. Yeah. Especially when the boat appears and he's sort of doing the, well, plants which rely for propagation on on floating seeds, coconut. Mm -hmm. Yes, but does it have a figurehead? Yeah. Amazingly shaped vegetables. It reminds me very much of Scully, X-Files. The desperate logical Mm. explanation in the face of like, which is why X-Files doesn't hold up to binging because you're just like... It does become funny after a while. You saw aliens last fucking week, dude. (laughs) you find me spooky (laughs) sexiest man alive but only in the x-files yeah yeah young david jacovny in the x-files not sexy outside of that no offense to david jacovny though just in case he's listening no i mean he's still very good looking but it's just he was heart achingly beautiful in the first couple of seasons but um, anyway gillian anderson just kept getting prettier so it was (laughs) yeah gillian anderson's still the hottest woman alive yeah God, I fancy Mulder. I fancy anyway. Mulder and Scully. Anyway. Now I can watch the X-Files again. Okay, yeah, Ponder. Yeah. Um, not Mulder or Scully, but Ponder. Yeah. Was a fastidious child. Yeah. Uh, carefully reads every label. I love the description of um, achieving great things or be hunted down by a righteous citizenry by the time he was 10. Absolutely. And I'm so glad he found his niche among the wizards, even if he doesn't feel very in his niche right now. Yeah, they never say it, but the wizards appreciate his presence, don't they? They do. Um, yeah, which is nice. 
And it's nice seeing how he's like, he's kind of slowly grown into this role. Like we've seen him build up into like from a student to building up into, he's now got a proper faculty title and everything. Although he still hangs out with students in the high energy magic building. It's nice watching him just grow and grow into being a part of this faculty, even if he's there to be a foil to like Red Cully, especially. Exactly so. Yep. And the Bursa, who, bless him, has had his brain somewhat broken by Red Cully. Yeah. Oh, it's um, beautifully explained, actually. It's a really satisfying bit of character exposition, explanation, mm. expansion, whatever. Preface by the line, he'd probably be the first to admit that he was a tea strainer. Yes, quite so. Yeah, just the the very, you get it, don't you, when he's explaining how overwhelming Red Cully is. Yeah, for someone who wants to quietly sit in a room and play with numbers. Yeah, it's poor, poor Bursa. (laughs) And you see that Red Cully does mean well with it and how extremely unpleasant it must be to be constantly bombarded by it. I do really feel for him, but I also really enjoy the description of him being a lightly poached egg compared to Red Cully as a rich suet pudding with garlic gravy. Mm. <laughs> Poor Bursa. Yes. Poor Bursa. And then, yes, Mrs. Whitlow. Mrs. Whitlow. Who's uh, thriving on the island, really is. Yeah, she's having she's a lovely got, time. Lovely holiday. She's got a new outfit. She's got her corsets off, uh-huh. metaphorically or otherwise. Which must be a relief if she is of the starch yeah. corset variety. Absolutely. And I really enjoy her explaining sex. I think to... sand in your corset. Sorry, Karen. Oh, yeah. Exfoliate corset. Mm. But yeah, I love her explaining sex to God. Yes. The matter of factness, I think, that a, an older woman is able to impart. The wisdom to it. And, and her attitude afterwards, where she'd sort of somewhat won, although the wizards couldn't define how. Mm. Combined with the nice reminder that, you know, this is the same Mrs. Whitlow from Equal Rights who was uh, keeping an eye out for her next husband through the medium of Granny's Tea Leaves. Yeah. I very much enjoy that we've still got that sort of saucy side to her. And I hate myself for using the phrase saucy there, but a better one didn't come to mind. Uh, Yeah, nope, that'll do. I can't think of one either. Saucy's in there now. Anyway, and then God. God. God of evolution. Atheist God. An, an atheist God of evolution, which is something I Poor think. Fucker. But it's something like you need Pratchett to write. Yeah. Like you need the build up of the disc world and how belief works and how people interact with gods to write an atheist God of evolution. Yeah. Like in the wrong hands, it could be so fucking, I don't know, edgelord. Yeah, it's definitely written more as a kind of gentle frustration awareness of his own contradiction rather than a i feel very bad for him he's, he's very it's very rinse wind in the camera and that that same thing we've seen a few times which is look i know i know the world's magical and illogical and shit but shouldn't it be like this couldn't it be better organized couldn't it, couldn't it? and his appearance is this like He's kind of pulled out what the wizards would expect, but doesn't understand what the beard is for as a demonstration of wisdom. Mm. Yes. Yeah. And it's uh, listeners will be unsurprised that the nature of belief is is my favourite thing across all the Discworlds, but a different taking it where the god was so frustrated that people believed in him. Yeah. And yeah, just wanted to set them off on their own little path and 
And then when he did try and do something, it all went horribly wrong. The idea of an inflammable cow is one that stuck with me for quite some time. Um, that's one of those, I couldn't have told you which Pratchett book it was from until this moment. but That produced a sort of bush that made distressing noises and squirted milk. Mm, not nice. <laughs> and then, of course, we get to see his actual workshop, which do you have an irrelevant broken in half and rummaged around on the inside elephant kind of yeah so basically i was reading about the the kind of evolution because it fit in of elephant feet yeah you know, it kind of fit in with the the elephant wheels mm-hmm. almost but they've kind of they, they've evolved in a certain way to be able to walk long distances with a massive weight on top of them yeah. So if you look at it, the skeleton of an elephant foot, it's 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 similar to most mammals and often you know birds and fish as well. Everyone's got the, the hand thing going on. Uh, mm-hmm. What's it called? Spiny things. What are they called? Footnotes. Vertebrates. Thank you. But they've also kind of evolved a sixth finger, which is interesting. Right. It's a false digit, a sesamoid bone. It's called, and it's kind of used for support and changed foot posture over the generations as it evolved and just made it. So yeah, it's kind of evolved into, I think Sam Vimes would be impressed how, how its feet have evolved to do just walking. I'm I'm impressed. Mm, yeah. Good job, elephants. I'll, I'll, I'll link to the better explanation of that written by scientists, but it's hard without pictures. <laughs> <laughs> They're like on tiptoes. I still had the mental image of the medieval depictions of elephants. So when I got to the bit in the workshop where it's split in half and he's running around the intestines, I imagined that as a medieval style tapestry. Mm. And that brought me joy for hours i looked into it yeah and uh, his beetle consumption compulsion as beetle well consumption a bit worried about your beetle consumption uh. <laughs> his beetle compulsion and it's a nice justification for uh so i found the actual numbers uh coleoptera is the beetle like proper name for this order mm-hmm. about four hundred thousand described species about 40 percent of described insects and 25% of all known animal life forms. Mm, that's too many. New species are discovered frequently with estimates suggesting there's between one and two million, which is a broad spectrum. That is a broad spectrum. It doesn't sound like it when you say it quickly, but then you're like, hmm, actually. Between one and two million, right. Did you know that bats have like a bunch of fucking species as well? Like 1,400 yeah. species? They're- Bats comprise about 20% of all classified mammal species worldwide. I yeah. love bats so much. They're so bats cool. Bats and beetles. Little yeah. flying things. Little the way flying forward, things. it seems, for diversification. And uh, yeah, I like. I just like the idea that that's why we have so many beetles, that God just makes them as a little calming hobby. Yeah, absolutely. And there's another one somewhere making bats. Yeah, and then Rincewind. 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 Mostly just getting from A to B at this point in the book. I think he's showing character development. He's being nice to sheep. He is being nice to sheep, which I respect, even if it's largely to do with fear of their glares, but a sheep looking at you is an intimidating thing. Yeah, he also feels bad for them. You can see him like get the sympathy and Oh yeah. Yeah. I like how he's very single minded but not opportunistic. So when he's offered a lot of money for his horse, he's like, I, I just want enough to get to bugger up. I want to go home. I want to get a boat. I want to go home. He's like yeah. not taking loads of money. He's not insisting on 500 squids after the bet is won or anything. He's just like, I just, just, I just want to get, get to me up to bugger up. <laughs> I think some of it's his kind of like almost fatalism. Like he knows if he gets 500 quid, he'll get it stolen off him in That's the next true. hour. 
that's true. And him being nice to sheep clearly isn't working out for him either. So no, but I think part of it is like he's sort of built this humbleness up in the face of. Sorry, I thought you were pausing mid-sentence to have a sip, and I was going to call you out on that, but there was no more sentence. Got it? No, I ran out. <laughs> I ran out of sentence before I got to the end of sentence, and I was hoping if I just took a sip of coffee. <laughs> I just I'm let it fly. No, sorry, I was baffled. Okay, uh, crocodile, 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 crocodile. I'm assuming this is a reference to Crocodile Dundee. Yeah, probably something right? else that's very big Australian pop culture, and I've never seen. Was it out by now? Was it? Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is what ninety eight. Yeah, there were a bunch of them, weren't there? Yeah, I feel like the first one was probably more like early to mid nineties. Nineteen eighty six. Ah, ah. But yeah, so obviously that means there's a another Crocodile Dundee reference, which is, you call that a knife. This is what I call a knife. Yeah. I'm aware this is a Crocodile Dundee reference, but 90% of my knowledge of Australian culture comes from that one episode of The Simpsons. And I just read this where I was quietly giggling to myself with, call that a knife. This is a knife. That's not a knife. It's a spoon. Ah, I see you've played knifey spoony before. Very good. Very good. Is that your one Australian phrase? Yeah. It's a good one to have. It should I, come up I, pretty often say it quietly to myself almost every time I open my cutlery drawer. <laughs> I don't know why it's so fucking funny. Um, like anyway. And then Snowy, the heroic little horse himself. Yay! Oh, the brackets, Scrappy again. Yes, Scrappy again. In small, stubborn horse form. Um, but this is one I wouldn't have thought to look for what the reference was if it wasn't for Ben and Liz when we talked about this book with them. Mm. They mentioned the man from Snowy River, which is one of those things that's like very well known in Australia and not so much outside of it. What is it again? Uh, the man from Snowy River. And I might be wrong about people not knowing it outside of Australia, it being popular in Australia, but that's my understanding. Banjo Patterson, who was a poet and author of many, many Australian tales, wrote a narrative poem called The Man from Snowy River, and it told of a man who rode a creature, something like a racehorse undersized. Yeah. And the whole bit with the canyon and the horses racing, that's like a whole reference to it. Um, he's also the guy who wrote the lyrics to Waltzing Matilda. Oh. Which adds some amusement when you realise that a lot of the stuff about Rincewind setting up to camp and making a soup, a lot of it Billabongs. scans. Yeah. But a lot of it scans with Waltzing Matilda and scans oh, yeah? to the tune of it, which yeah. I wouldn't have noticed if Annotator Pratchett hadn't pointed out. Very cool. God, he had so much fun getting references in here, didn't he? Yeah. Which also, those Castle Main Brewing adverts I mentioned earlier, like one of the guys in them was uh, referred to as Snowy. Ah. So I assume that's also a reference to... Yes. And then, yeah, location. We we go to the t- little township of Did You Bring a Beer Along? Yay. Which T- Tiny little middle of nowhere place. Unlike Lamados, that name, I got the reference right away. Or I got you don't say. But did You Bring a Beer Along? It's got a bar. It's got some sheep. It's got some weirdly anthropomorphic uh, animals. What's going on there? Yes, everything's for some reason. You can't really say to the crocodile, is that a wombat drinking a beer over there? Yeah, it, 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 it might just be that there's, you know, it's a weird magic. Everything's gone wrong. Everything is slightly surreal yeah. and it just kind of adds to it. It's all very hallucinogenic, half dream kind of thing. I like that they have a sheep shearing contest. I've never really thought about the logistics of shearing a sheep. Well, now we know you need a mirror, scissors, lavender, colours, or sheep. Also, a bloody when, beautiful sheep, though. 
when Rincewind's doing his kind of barber bit, he says something about something for the weekend, which I didn't know was an old timey mm. sort of euphemistic thing barbers said when they were offering to sell someone condoms. Which was a thing, apparently. Yeah. Oh, yep. Where else would you get your condoms from? So that's uh, that's something I learned. Something for the weekend, sir. Something for the weekend, sir. Know yeah. what I mean? Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Say what I mean. Say no more, squire. <laughs> I wonder if that was the same kind of era where Madness wrote House of Fun. Yeah. Everything was just very difficult to order. That was the only place. Yeah. We didn't really go anywhere else. There was some camping. There was, like I said, the aforementioned canyon. Well, we've got the cave. We've got the God Cave. We've got the God Cave. That's pretty cool. Apart from that, they're still on the island with these feckin' Egypts. Mm-hmm. And, uh, no, yeah, Rincewind's pretty much just out back. Did you bring a beer along? Out back. Yeah. I think he's about to be dragged somewhere else. Uh, yes, I've got the impression that some dragging is happening in his very near future. <laughs> should we talk about the little bits we liked? We should. I like the running gag of things arriving in Forex uh, on Driftwood. Camels, for instance. <laughs> it was mostly the camels that got me. Yeah. Um, I know some things end up going from place to place on Driftwood. Um, in fact, I've got a study right here from the Journal of Molluscan Studies. Ah, uh, driftwood as a vector for the oceanic dispersal of estuarine gastropods and an evolutionary pathway to the sunken wood community, uh, which I haven't read, but I did yeah. enjoy the title. And I think the sunken wood community sounds like a wonderful commune. Yep, I'm going to join that one. I'm into it. Yep. And yeah, no, it's just made me laugh. Desert Island Discs. There's a joke in here uh, when they're marooned and the chair of indefinite studies says to the dean, uh, I was just wondering as a little mental exercise if you're marooned on a desert island, dear dean, what kind mm-hmm. of music would you like to listen to? The dean's very sarcastic response is, I would like to listen to the music in the Ankh-Morpork Pork Opera House. Oh, did you read it as sarcastic or it was just like not even getting the fun of the joke, like desultory, like... I would listen to the Ankh-Morpork Opera House. <laughs> oh, I, t- I took it as more like because he wants to be back yeah. in Ankh-Morpork and I not expect you're right, because the Dean is definitely a sarky little bastard. Yes, but he should be careful with the music in the Ankh-Morpork Opera House because murders. <gasps> murders? But some non-UK listeners might not get the reference, which is a very popular long-running Radio 4 show called Desert Island Discs, in which someone famous comes on and is interviewed about the eight songs they would choose if they were stranded on a desert island. Yep. It's also the inspiration for the name of one of our fellow podcasts, uh, Desert Island Discworld. Yes. In Shout which out to he Al. He asks his interviewees which Discworld book they'll bring them. Yes. Bring with them. Terry Pratchett himself was on Desert Island Discs. Yeah, I was listening to it the other week. That episode. Are we? Because mm. uh, he talked about one of the books we did whenever it was. I have got the list of the songs he chose, which are Symphony Fantastique, Dream of a Witch's Sabbath, London Symphony Orchestra, Thomas the Rhymer by Steel Ice Span. Mm. I'm not surprised they made the list. Uh, Unless it's a bit spoilery if you haven't read all of the books, but Steel Ice Span's Wintersmith album is Discord inspired and very good. The Race for the Rheingold Stakes, Bernard Miles, The Marriage of Figaro, Mozart, Bat Out of Hell, Meatloaf. Of course. Silk Road theme, Kitaro, Great Southern Land, Ice House, and Four Seasons Summer. Mm. Obviously, Vivaldi. No, it's a very nice, nice, eclectic little mix. You can have one luxury object and one book that's not the Bible, I think. Or How to Escape from a Desert Island. Exactly. So, so yeah, we've got 
there's bound to be something with a title, something like Edible Plants of the South Seas. Now, I know you disapprove, <laughs> but I'm a fairly practical person, and I realise that behind every plant that we now eat, there are all the unsung cavemen that prove the other ones were poisonous. So that's nice and relevant to this one. <laughs> and your luxury? Cheating, I know, but the Chrysler Building from New York. Built in, <laughs> built in 1930, it's a marvellous piece of Gothic art deco with eagle's heads and gargoyles and a summit which looks like some kind of Vesaldo cinema. It's just this marvellous silver creation. It's the ultimate skyscraper. We shall have it shipped out immediately. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> the Chrysler Building is really fucking cool, though. I know, but it's a luxury item. <laughs> <laughs> skyscraper. Makes perfect yeah. sense. I'll link to the transcript as well as the episode for anyone who wants to awesome anyone who prefers their content in written format in which case why are you listening to this <laughs> i only got down got around to transcribing one episode which by the way i might get back to but fuck me it takes a long time yeah and god whoever does that for a living is not paid enough it's no tedious especially when it's yourself yeah i can't i can't listen to myself for that long yeah. anyway no worries no worries as they say a lot in this. It was an amazing phrase. It was practically magical all by itself. It just made things better. A shark's got your leg? No worries. You've been stung by a jellyfish? No worries. You're dead? She'll be right? No worries. Oddly enough, it seemed to work. I love she'll be right. I use that one a lot in day-to-day -day life. Yeah, me too. I know no worries is meant to be a very Australian thing, but I, I cannot see it without hearing Hakuna Matata. Yeah, I use it as my, you know, dinada, which I used to get told off for when I waitress sometimes, which I guess, fair enough, it was not really fine dining language. But I remember at the end of one very long day, the thing that nearly drove me over the edge was some old guy who'd asked for, I don't know, more wine or something. And I said, no worries or no problem, something like that. And he said, yeah. uh, actually, you should say my pleasure or certainly. And his wife told him off. So that was nice because otherwise I think I was about to burst into tears. That's it fair. Late. It was like 11 o'clock or something. I was like, fuck off. I'm sure you're right, but just fuck off with it. I, I will never understand the people who feel the need so intensely to be right that they will chastise a fucking waitress over a turn of phrase. The, the, the logic behind it, and so far as there is any, is that no problem suggests that perhaps there could be a problem. Which is the shittiest broken logic I've ever heard. Because yeah. your welcome suggests that maybe you wouldn't have been welcome. Or certainly suggests that perhaps it wasn't a certainty. Wine is never a certainty, not at 11 o'clock in a fancy no. hotel. I also used to, I also twice in my first week or whatever it was, once got told off for bringing some on the wine menu without asking. And then by another table, got told off for not bringing the wine menu. And they had to ask for it. At which point I realised... There was no there is winning. No, there was no there winning. Is no winning. <laughs> anyway. Drop bears. Um, drop bears. She'll be right. Not, she won't be. Not so the one drop, that just landed on Rincewind. These are koala-like bears that paralyse their prey before feasting by yep. having very padded bottoms and dropping out of the sky onto their heads. Very dangerous. Apparently they are one of those running jokes for tourists. We try and convince them that drop bears are real, yeah. much like... We try and convince people that haggis are live animals that must be hunted. Yeah. Or that Leicestershire is real. Yeah. yeah. Leicestershire is definitely not real. <laughs> just look at how it's spelled. Not sure why I picked Leicestershire. Yeah, I think it was the spelling. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's or just there to upset Americans. <laughs> <laughs> Leicestershire. <laughs> Don't write in. It's a lovely county. <laughs> <laughs> 
the pub we hang out has a jackalope on the wall, which is mm. a taxidermy oh, rabbit with antlers. And we used to convince people that it was a very real live animal. We had such a good patter down. Yeah, no, they're actually uh, North American. There is a rarer Scandinavian variety, but I'm not sure if it actually counts as a true jackalope. You should see the wingspan on it. Yeah, Huge. then that was generally that the was generally when it broke tipping point. Yeah, if when you started feeling bad about them falling for it. <laughs> Plain language. Yeah, which also would have been one of my quotes, but it would have involved me reading out an entire page. This is just the Exian similes, mm. such as uh, snagged as a wombat's tonka. Chucking a twisters when you know that's when you bend a smarty. Uh, <laughs> gonging like a possum's armpit, which is when you crack a crusty. When your ears are stuffed like a mudgy's kettle after a week of Fridays, that's stuck up like Morgan's mule. But no, you're referring to happier than Morgan's mule in a chalky patch. Have you got any real ones? What do you mean? These are all real. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. <laughs> Faster than an eel and a snake bit. The problem is I tried thinking of real ones, but I kept going back to when we were doing uh, the bromeliad which just meant faster than, e.g., an eel in a snake bit. I, d- I did find um, an appendix with some Australian English colloquial similes, if you're interested. Oh, marvellous. We've got sadder than a Werribee duck. Very disappointed by the outcome. A Werribee is home to one of the world's largest sewerage farms. Ah. Is that it? <laughs> Grinning like a shot fox. Dry as a dead dingo's donga. Useful as an ashtray on a motorbike. And there's <laughs> lots of these. I'll link to it. But... Uh... <laughs> For the useful ones, uh, chocolate teapot's always been my preferred. Vegemite slash Marmite. Honestly, I didn't bother looking into the difference between the two constitutionally. I've never actually tried Vegemite. I like Marmite. I don't think um, I've tried Vegemite. Becky tells me it's better than Marmite. Yeah, you're right. Marmite, I did the stupid amateur thing. It was the first time I tried it, I spread it on like Nutella. I didn't really know what oh, it yeah. was. And it put me off so thoroughly. And I don't really like twiglets, and that's put me off trying again. If I can get hold of some Vegemite for not an insane amount of money, then I might do so. But it I was... cook with Marmite a lot. Oh, yeah? Like as just an umami stock? Kind yeah, of... like I'll throw it into a gravy or uh, like a red sauce or something like that. That's a good idea. Vegemite was introduced in the early 20th century following the disruption of Marmite imports after World War One. The inventor worked for a food company already he was given the task of developing a spread from the used yeast being dumped by breweries right (laughs) it's about to celebrate its centenary i was fucked that word up (laughs) um um, and a a little town in western victoria is claiming the invention as its own by creating a museum in its honor oh excellent Uh, so if anybody is around beaufort 50 kilometers west of ballarat soon you may be able to go and learn yeah. much more about the origins of Vegemite. I, I love all those old food adverts and that. And uh, yeah. like Bob Roll's one of my favourite, even though I don't eat fluid beef. Um, <laughs> or solid advertising beef, for great, that matter. Yeah. <laughs> um, also, Amanda Palmer has a very funny Vegemite song. Oh, yeah? It's called that. Vegemite and it's like a sort of dramatic, slow piano ballad about uh, how difficult it is to have a relationship with someone who eats Vegemite when you can't stand it. Oh no. <laughs> um, it's on her Down Under album, so I'll link to it in the show notes. But it's also, um, there's like Australian. a. Sp- no. Okay. Uh, but she's performed like a lot out there. She's very popular. Yep. Um, 
but there's like a spoken bit in the song where she sort of breaks down and then goes, I'm sorry, and explains that she doesn't like Vegemite because a British neighbour tricked her into eating a spoonful of Marmite when she was a kid. <laughs> Which on its own is very funny, but I've seen her perform it with Andrew O'Neill actually singing the song. Yeah. Um, it, which started as like a bit because she was on tour with them and found this ridiculous cheap like floor length gown and bought it for them on the basis that they'd sing this very lying on a piano song wearing uh, it. Yes. But Andrew O'Neill, instead of obviously doing her spoken bit, will just go on an unhinged rant for that section. That seems fine, yeah. None of which I can remember in detail, but there were things like a very, very in-depth explanation of who the tree villain was in uh, X-Men. It's not Magneto. It's definitely not my great uh, So if I can find one of those videos, I will link to it. But Super. it's a very amusing song. And it's really annoying because I, f- I love Marmite. I probably love Vegemite. But I also really like singing the song. It's very satisfying to belt out. Oh, good. I'll look it up. I, I intend to enjoy it. I intend to enjoy it. I expect I'll enjoy it. And also I intend to. Talking points? Let's go on to the biggest stuff. Speaking of unhinged rants, let's get to our scheduled unhinged rant section. Yeah, I've kind of crammed all of my opinions into one. I'm building up to some kind of fantastic central thesis that I'll have abandoned by episode three. Cute. I like it. I'm consistent, if nothing else. Uh, But starting with the idea of time travel, Mm. because I have a love-hate relationship with this in fiction because the rules are always different about what you've changed and what you need to unchange Mm -hmm. and what it does to the future. And depending on how intense those rules are in something, I generally have to switch my brain off from trying to understand it. Mm. Specifically, Doctor Who. Well, that's because Doctor Who don't even try and keep it consistent. There's no point trying to understand it. Exactly. Back to the Future, I just love their good movies. And ditto Bill and Ted's most excellent adventure. I mean, when yeah, when you get like campy comedies, it's not... Yeah, that's what I mean about the love-hate thing. Like, I love it in a campy comedy. I hate it when it tries to take itself very seriously. Oh, really? Uh, See, I quite like it. I I like a time travel paradox. Well, I love this very, very determined insistence of Ponder of just how important it is. And he's so forceful on the wizards of this idea of you could somehow stop your own grandfather from ever being born by Mm -hmm. treading on the wrong ant. Yep. But then having to go into detail of exactly how that ant affects your grandfather being born yeah metaphor does not go over well especially not with rid cully and it's sort of hand waved by the end of the section with rid cully saying well you know past happened before we got here but now we're here we've changed it well then we changed it before and that pretty well summed it up it is very easy to get ridiculously confused about the tenses of time travel but most things can be resolved by a sufficiently large ego yep. <laughs> and this is it it is a time travel narrative in that they literally do travel back through time, but it's not like the big focus of the book is a time travel thing. What kind of is. They change the past. They do change the past. But I like it as a narrative because it's not super hung up on the detail yeah. beyond what works for the story. Mm. There is no trying to lodge out logic out of it. It's accepted that the egos are doing a lot of work. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it is logicked out by the end of the book, as you said. Yeah. But it doesn't go into the depths of the logic beyond getting Ponder to play off Ridcully. Mm. And that's fun for me. That makes me enjoy this as a book. That's good. That's a practice explaining temporal mutability. We like temporal mutability, apart from when it comes to the poor librarian's gland. He's got a malfunctioning temporal gland. I like time travel tropes in general. They're I enjoy all of the things you don't on here. So <laughs> the um, 
you know, it makes sense. I'm more of a sci-fi person than you are. The so temporal mutability is like a sliding scale mm-hmm. of how easy it is for time travelers to change the past. Yeah. And why. So Ponda is worried that they're somehow between temporal balancing act, which is quite high on the scale, which is you have to be careful or you'll change the past in theory if you like don't tread on that and it might be okay. And yeah. temporal chaos theory, which is just by being in the past you've altered it, which is potentially causing a snowball effect, which could have any kind of unforeseen consequences. So some examples of that in media, uh Simpsons again, second Simpsons re- Reference yep. tree, Treehouse of Horror 5. I was uh, just thinking of that one where he goes back and steps in a bug. And... Yeah, everything's fine. Um, and then Ray Bradbury's A Sound of Thunder, which is another... I talked about a few of them in that one, actually. But that's a nice little short story, which I went ruined by trying to explain. But do go read it. Mm-hmm. And then Rid Kali is arguing for the stable time loop. You can't change anything because you already did. So the past, including whatever they do here, already happened. Media that sometimes kind of demonstrated in a tragic way is like a self-fulfilling prophecy. You can't escape the the fate you've been dealt. Sometimes it's, you know, trying to save somebody who's died kind of thing. To take it out of tropes and into kind of philosophy, he's arguing for block time or eternalism. So as opposed to growing block theory where the past and present exist but the future doesn't, which is a more common way of looking at it, it's not a very... Is not taken up very widely anymore, block time, especially because relativity seems to disprove some of it or cast doubt upon parts of it. But reading mm-hmm. arguments about it is great fun. Um, like, I love philosophers yelling at each other. So, this is like a quote from Wiki, one of the Wiki pages. Can't remember which one now. I went down a rabbit hole. Um, Avshalom Elitzer vehemently rejects the block universe interpretation of time at the Time and Cosmology Conference, which, by the way, um, held at the Perimeter Institute for Theoretical Physics in 2016, Elitzer said, I'm sick and tired of this block universe. I don't think the next Thursday has the same footing as this Thursday. The future does not exist. It does not. Ontologically, it's not there. (laughs) (laughs) I love philosophers getting angry. Yep. And then, obviously, they're butting up against the grandfather paradox from different directions, which is quite interesting. Yeah. It's that if you kill your own grandfather or do some, you know, that's the example, but generally do something else to make your birth or just eventual time travel trip impossible. How did you then travel to the past to take that action? So from TV tropes. So then killing your grandfather causes you to not exist. And since you don't exist, you never killed him, which means he survives. So you exist. So you go back to kill him, which means he doesn't. So you don't. Therefore, he does. So do you, etc. Or as Rick Carly puts it. Only one thing I don't understand, though, Rid Cully said. Who'll tread on the ant? What? Well, it's obvious, isn't it? Said the Arch-Chancellor. If I tread on this ant, then I won't exist. But if it don't, ex- if I don't exist, then I can't have done it. So I won't. So I will. See? I love how <laughs> he's very happy with the paradox. <laughs> yep. I mean, obviously, the type of problem is confined very much to fiction, because in real life, a paradox means it can't work. A logical paradox can't be a thing. Mm-hmm. So it can mean that time travel could never exist according to the law of contradiction, blah, blah, blah. My husband, Jack, has very, very, very picky about time travel in literature and film media. He says that almost everybody fucks up the logic. And apparently one of the few 
books he's read that doesn't is the first 15 lives of harry august which i'm sure i've recommended before but we'll recommend again it's one of my favorites yeah i still need to read that one yeah. Yeah. yeah i like it as kind of a bigger picture looking at again sort of motivation in the ponder and ridcully relationship mm-hmm. as ponder's so worried that what they will do will affect things change the past change the future it really relates to how he is so certain that he does have a place a purpose that what he can do will affect things that's why he wants to learn mm. how things work ah. It's such a big motivator for him and why it's so somewhat disheartening when he meets the God until he rallies around it, which is that he, you know, he wants to know what the purpose is and he doesn't understand that humans aren't the purpose of the whole business. Yeah. And the God explaining the purpose of the whole business is in fact to be the whole business. Yes. Which is a... And um, the gods sort of very pissed. I don't want something that's going to think about the universe. Yeah, <laughs> there's so many. God, please don't look at it. God, <laughs> you'll see all the holes. It's set dressing. No one knows how that line of code works, but yeah. if we take it out, it breaks. Yeah. And we just <laughs> left it in. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's ninety percent of the programs, all right. But yeah, but ponder. You know, having looked for purpose looked for finding the reasons and logic behind everything when he finds out there isn't he's like okay well then this is it this is the thing this is what i'm gonna stay and learn now you know um especially when he gets drawn into this whole the elephants and the bees idea yeah (laughs) elephants are pollinated by bees right yeah i think i think so that sounds about right but i really like time travel tying into this overall theme you know ridcully is very Mm. happy to bluster through his ego overwrites a lot of paradoxes slash they make sense to him because of how his mind works. Yeah. Uh, so he, yeah, he's quite happy to blithely soldier on and not be caught up in the heavy detail, whereas Ponder wants to see the bigger picture. And Rincewind is... Wants to run from it. Yeah, Rincewind has been plonked into this massive amount of bad luck because of it and would like to now leave. Thank you. Yeah, no, it's not my wants, fault. <laughs> Rincewind wants boredom and potatoes and mm. the last thing he wants is to have to deal with the bigger picture in any way, shape or form. Yeah, He doesn't mm. realise he's running to it and is very much trying to run from it and to a ship. And I love this as a theme for the book of this idea of looking for purpose and getting somewhat lost on the way. And just how much your actions and what you're looking for affect everything else. Yes. Very nice. And I will forget all of these themes as we go into the next episode, as I said. But our themes and theories evolve. They do, much like other things. (laughs) Because evolution, which is a fun little kind of a side plot. Yeah, the theory of evolution as a side plot. Yeah, no, I like that. That's fine. That's like the C plot. Uh, Yeah, yeah. Um, so we've kind of got the watchmaker analogy here. Yeah, made but a watchmaker who's frustrated by his watches who keep going off and doing their own thing. So this is the theory of intelligent design, which is uh, popular among the more Christian of the philosophers slash uh, theological of philosophers. Yeah. And it's the idea that um, I think the human eye is a really common example. This Mm. is so nuanced and details. It must have something intelligent must have had a hand in its design. Yeah. It's it's very hard for us to imagine the kind of time needed for things to evolve, which I think is why um, these things persist. I quite liked... One of Darwin's quotes from The Origin of Species, which kind of seems to settle on this midpoint that this book does, which is, there is grandeur in this view of life, 
with its several powers having been originally breathed by the creator into a few forms or into one, and that while this planet has gone cycling on according to the fixed law of gravity from so simple a beginning, endless forms most beautiful and most wonderful have been and are being evolved. So this idea that, as would happen on this island, you'd make a few things and then they go off and do their own thing, I think was Darwin's kind of halfway point. I've never been quite uh, certain. I've read different things onto whether Darwin said this kind of thing to make his book less scandalous or whether he did retain a kind of theology. He was quite Christian. He was certainly to start with, I'm not sure. I think he maintained his belief that there was a theological hand in it somewhere Mm -hmm. uh, from what I've read, but then obviously we can't really know for certain. The the payoff on fish being fish-shaped, kind of, which is the elephant wheels. Um, <laughs> so, are you quite sure about the wheels? The god looked concerned. Do you think they're too small, not suitable for the belt? And Ponder's like, but probably just give him legs, which is kind of explaining his question about why are fish fish-shaped? Because that's the best way to get around in the water. Why yeah. does everything have legs? Because it's it trying to move around, yeah, yeah, partly because of uh, because of chance as well, obviously, because they're during various extinctions. This design is the one that stuck. The one that stuck, and then everything evolved from this or that. I know it's not what you mean, but I like the implication that if things have gone slightly differently with extinction events, we could have elephants with wheels. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. exactly what I mean. Oh, okay, good. Yeah, I'm glad I'm not <laughs> misinterpreting you. <laughs> I also liked the kind of description he had about his book where you used to have three little... Oh, yeah, and you matched different yeah, match animals Yeah, different animal up. parts up. Becky, for my birthday, no, for Christmas, gave me something called The Great Book of the Animal Kingdom by Beto Val, which has a bunch of different animal combinations like already drawn up nicely. Oh, I've, I've copied a couple of for funsies and painting practice, my favourite of which is the snail bird, Snurd. 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 I forgot about the snail bird. Everyone likes a snurd, Joanna. I love the word snurd. Yeah. yeah, Just along the, because we're on science, I quite like the the two different types of scientists we've got shown here with the wizards, which is the prodigency type Mm -hmm. scientist who have made great progress over the centuries, often great progress followed by Eventually, dying painfully, but yeah. <laughs> and then the overthinkers like Ponder who come at it from a, but this and then this and then this, who kind of eventually, you know, take apart building blocks of the universe and work out yeah. how they're going. So, yeah, I think in combination, we do have a good faculty. I love the description of the wizards as they'll take a bite of something and then ask if it's poisonous with their <laughs> mouth full. <laughs> exactly. Well, it's like it's like chemists who always used to taste their chemicals and stuff. And I know geologists still do that, but I assume it's less often you find a poisonous rock. And then just the one line I quite liked. Uh, it had never struck him that evolution works in all kinds of ways. There were still quite deep scars in old buildings that showed what happened when you had the other kind of wizard. Oh, yeah. Mm. Which is a, there's a lot of nice callbacks in this for that one, especially. I know it's not just sorcery, but mm. sorcery is calling back to a time where that was more common. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. But the idea of the wizards evolving into this quite comfortable faculty where yeah. they're not really fighting for top spots anymore. Yeah, it's like a, a, a nature balance thing. Uh, cultural evolution. Yeah. Hmm. I just said that to sound clever. I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. Yeah, well done on backing yourself up there, Jay. 
<laughs> I'm so confident in myself. Yeah, that's all I have to say about that. That's pretty much all I have to say about part two of The Last Continent. Francine, do you have an obscure reference finial for me? Yeah, it's mentioned that there are seeds that float around and they're talking about boat-shaped fruits. And stuff. Oh yeah, of course. So I had a little look into that. And there's like a whole, you'll be very unsurprised to know, speciality of drift seeds and drift fruits. Seeds that ride the ocean currents. This is one cool webpage I found, it says. And I quite, I quite like their very poetic opening line, which is, Imagine yourself floating helplessly on the open sea, thousands of miles from land, your destination at the mercy of the wind and currents. Perhaps eventually you might drift ashore on the coral sand beaches of a remote tropical island or distant continent. This is precisely what happens to countless thousands of tropical drift seeds and fruits, a remarkable flotilla of flowering plants that travel the oceans of the world. And they've included a very cool map, which I put in notes. I don't know if you can see it. Um, I have got it up. It's very cool. But yeah, there's all kinds of stuff. So you got like the coconut, which I think you mentioned. You've also got things like the sea bean, the the box fruit, the knicker nut. The knicker nut. Yeah, no K, sadly. But yeah, I, I'll link to the webpage and it's got a bunch of very interesting things about drift seeds and drift fruits. I knew about the coconut thing, so I think that's a Tumblr post that always falls back down to the Monty Python reference of, are you telling me coconuts migrate? Yes, actually, uh-huh. they fucking do. <laughs> How they got to Camelot, we're not sure, but they definitely <laughs> do migrate. Very good. I quite liked, um, I can't remember if it was a tweet or a Tumblr post, but I saw somebody go, but if coconuts ended up in some of these places before horses did, does that mean that somebody turned up on a horse one day and someone else went, what an excellent impression of a coconut? <laughs> Yes, that's definitely what happened. I'm confirming it now. Mm. It's nice to know humans have always been shit posts. Yes. Right. Well, I think that's everything we have to say on part two of The Last Continent. We will be back in your ears next week with part three, which begins on a page that Good. I haven't quite got to. Page 256 on the corky paperback and starts with uh, Ponder Stibbons cleared his throat. Where would you like me to start? Which I've told him, page 256. God, Ponder. And obviously going, funnily enough, to the end of the book. We're not going to save the last page for a bonus episode or anything. In the meantime, dear listener, you can find us on Instagram, at the Truth Shall Make You Fret, on Twitter, at Make You Fret Pod, on Facebook, at the Truth Shall Make You Fret. You can join our subreddit community, r slash TTSMYF. Email us your thoughts, queries, castle snacks, and coconuts, the Truth Shall Make You Fret Pod at gmail.com. And if you want to support us financially, go to patreon.com forward slash the Truth Shall Make You Fret. Exchange some of your hard earned pennies for bonus nonsense. And of course, please do remember to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. It helps other people find us you don't need to leave it on the website just like yell out your review yeah while you have it open just like lean out your window and shout Mm -hmm. that we're really good Mm -hmm. thank you we appreciate it thanks guys cheers and until next time dear listener don't let us detain you um i just clicked through one of the links on that drift bean thing yeah. Um, to seabean.com. Mm-hmm. And oh my God, there's so much stuff. I've got sea bean stories, how to grow sea beans, how to polish sea beans, why sea beans float, games and fun stuff, sea beans by location, books on sea beans, sea bean jewelry, sea beans in the news, sea bean symposiums. 
It's good and, lord. Yeah, and this is a very early website, but it's still updated by the looks of it. Someone's put a 2022 link here. Um, let's have a Seabean uh, Symposium 2022, the 25th, the 25th annual International Seabean Symposium and Beachcombers Festival. Um, it's way too soon to know if there'll be one, but if so, it'll be in Texas. That's um, that's quite delightful, actually. Yeah. So it's in Texas in even-numbered years and Florida in odd-numbered years. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, what? It doesn't tell me anything about the Sea Bean Symposium, though. Um. <laughs> it's a mystery. <laughs> mystery Sea Bean Symposium. Yeah. Sp- oh, I've, I've clicked through to the 2019 one. Keynote presentation from the Rio Grande to Alligator Point scavenger hunt. Goodness me. What a, what a whole niche that I'm not really going to go too much further into, but I'm pleased to know it exists. Francine, put the Please link in the show notes and then close the link before you go too far oh, into. Hold on, hold on. You can make a sea bean spinning top. We can print out a colouring fade. There's it's a too late, game. we've lost you. We've lost you. All right, now I've closed it, I've closed it. Okay. 